0: If you have your Bibles and you'd like to open and follow along, we're going to be looking at Genesis 26, the second half of the chapter, Genesis 26, 18 through 33, so almost the end of the chapter, not quite, right at the beginning of the Bible, page 20, in my version right here. This is part of our sermon series through the book of Genesis, we're over a year through and we're just over halfway, so it looks like probably another year or so through, through the book of Genesis. And remember, the benefits of consecutive expository preaching is that we don't skip over anything. We hit everything that, that's in the Bible, and we make sure we get the full counsel of God. Let's go to the Lord's prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning... We ask, as always, for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, our spiritual hearts to see and hear and understand your word. Father, that's first and foremost our prayer is that you help us understand what's written. And then we also ask that you would allow us to apply what's written to our lives. Uh, Father, we acknowledge that this is one of your ordinary means, the authoritative proclamation of your word. This is how you shape and sanctify and grow and build up your church. So, Father, we give thanks and we petition you to give us understanding from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Steve had been looking forward to this day for a long time. It was archery day in junior high PE. Every year the seventh graders were given instruction on beginning archery skills and today was the day. It was a nice sunny warm spring day and the teacher brought all the bows and and arrows and equipment out to the makeshift shooting range. He had five targets set up so there were plenty of stations so that all the students would have a chance to shoot and the first thing he did after he bringing all the equipment out was instruct the students to get in a, a half circle. He said, form a semicircle behind me so you're all facing me, because he wanted to teach them. And the first thing he taught them was safety. He said, at no time shall you go downrange unless I've given the signal. He said, when you hear the whistle, stop shooting, put your bow on the ground, and after I've inspected the area and make sure it's safe, I will say, all clear, you may go downrange and retrieve your arrows. And he said, then and only then may you go downrange. The last thing the teacher wanted was for some 7th grader to get shot while he was teaching PE. So after the safety instruction, he went to the bow and arrow, and he picked up the bow, and he said, I want to show you how to hold the bow. And he said, this is how you hold it and he held it out in front of him and he said, just like this, not like this, and not like this. He said, if you hold it like this, that when you release the string, it can, it can rub up against your arm and cause an injury. He said, if you hold it like this. He said, does everybody see it? And he went around the semicircle and he showed everybody. All the students said, yeah, I see it. So okay, and he gave them some more instruction and then he said, it's your turn. Everybody pick up a bow. So everybody picked up a bow. Hold it out in front of you like you're going to shoot. Hold it straight out in front of you. So everybody did that. And one by one he went around and he said, okay, not bad, not bad, okay. And then he made an adjustment here and the next student he turned. Okay, all right. And then he came to Steve and he said, Steve, that's perfect. And he said, hold that right there. And he said, everybody else, everybody around, look around, gather around Steve. He said, do you see how Steve's holding the bow right now? Yes. That's how you do it right like that. Okay, thanks, Steve. And then he went on to the next person. And Steve was beaming. He was thrilled that it was archery day. He was even more thrilled that the teacher had called attention to him and pointed him out as a positive example. Why did the teacher do that? Why did the teacher have them form a semicircle? Why did he show them how to hold the bow? Why did he have them do it? Why did he have them gather around Steve? and and look and see how to hold the bow? And the answer is because sometimes there's just no substitute for being shown how to do something. The instructor could have talked about it all day. He could have handed them out a, a sheet with instructions on how to hold the bow, but there's no substitute for actually seeing someone do it and being shown the right way. As we look at Genesis 26 this morning, God is going to show us Isaac. Everybody gather around. You see how Isaac's doing it. That's how you do it. Okay, thanks Isaac. You can step back now. God in his wisdom, of course, has revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. But God also knows that his word is perfect, Jesus is perfect, and he knows if that's, if that's what we had, we Jesus and his word. As finite human beings who aren't perfect, there might be a temptation for us every once in a while to say, yeah, well, we're not Jesus, so don't expect too many great things from me. In addition to the perfect example of Jesus and his word, every once in a while, God throws out a person like you and me with flesh and blood that shows us how to do something and that's what we've got here this morning. Isaac is a living example of an imperfect human like you and me that shows us practical faith-based living and it'll show us we'll show we'll see this in a couple of different areas areas how to live peacefully with with your neighbors and even your enemies. How to love God and love neighbor and also how that when We engage in practical faith-based living that serves as light that others can see and give glory to God. So let's take a look at this passage in chapter 26, starting at verse 18. We're picking up right where we left off. And remember, we just started the paragraph at 17. So we're going to start at 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to, he, went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath his advisor and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Shabbat. Therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Shabbat to this day. When Esau was 40, and we're going to stop right there, the end of 33. Hold off on Esau. The name of the city is Be'er Shabbat to this day. We're going to call this first section, well, 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 because that's Everything that's going on There's a well Then there's another well And then there's another well after that And it starts with this Instruction about how Isaac had moved away from the city of Gerar Remember he moved away from Gerar The city proper Which was the capital And he moved out away from there Into the valley Now we find him digging up the wells That had been stopped by the Philistines These were the wells that Abraham had dug These were the wells of his father and in verse 18, we have that overview type of verse that says uh, he's digging up these wells and he's naming them the same as his father. So that's the broad kind of overview uh, title of what's going on in this section. And then after that, then we have the specific examples all the way to the end of, of individual wells. It says the Philistines had stopped them up because they didn't want Isaac to dwell in the land the Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham well this is a pretty good strategy first of all it's a time of famine so there's there's a shortage of, of food and potentially water and second of all if Isaac's household has all this livestock and many many herds if there isn't enough water then there isn't enough water for the animals which means they're going to move on so this is actually a pretty good strategy stop the water maybe Isaac will just go away Verse 19 and 20, Isaac's servants discover a well of spring water and there's a problem. So if it is indeed a time of famine, which it is, water is already at a premium. Spring water describes a a place of running water. So it's not just a well or a cistern or something that could maybe potentially go dry, but but running water, a constant source. It's it's more fresh than just plain well water or some kind of a, a cistern. But the inhabitants of the land claim the water for themselves. The water is ours. Isaac responds. Now, what should his response be at this point? Well, let's take a look. This is, first of all, if on the plain reading, it seems very obvious, his servants did the work, right? Even just a... a, A casual sense of right and wrong seems to tell us, well, if they did the work, then they should probably have the water. So the servants did the work. Second of all, what did verse 18 tell us? These are his father's wells that they had stopped up. Abraham's wells. Who is now the the covenant head of the household? Isaac. Isaac inherited everything. So whose wells are they? They're Isaacs. So, they were originally dug by his father. They were stopped up by the Philistines. They belonged to him. Isaac had uh, God had promised Isaac and Abraham and all their offspring the land that is around it. Let's not forget about that. This is the promised land that they're in. So, this is going to be, at some point, Isaac's and his offspring. So, he had good reason to stand his ground and fight for these wells. But what is his response? His response is to move on. He names the well Essek, which means contention, and then he just walks away. Verse 21, same thing happens again. They go to another well, they dig it, they redig it, and it's contended by the herdsmen of Gerar, and the, he names it Sitna, which means enmity, and then they move on, walk away. It happens a third time. Verse 22, they dug another well. This time, they're left alone. This time it's not contended. So Isaac names the well Rehoboth, which means broad places or room, and then he acknowledges that it's God's the one that has given them this place. God's the one that has allowed them to have this well uncontested. And then he makes a, make a statement of faith We shall be fruitful in the land. Talking about in the future. He believes God, he believes God's going to provide. This is good to see. This is good to see Isaac. If you remember from last week, we had the fail by Isaac when he tried to pass his wife off as his sister. So after something catastrophic like that, where he doesn't trust God and he tries to act on his own strength, it's good to see Isaac back on track. It's good to see him walking by faith. This is textbook walking by faith. This is textbook faith-based practical living living peaceably with his neighbors, trusting God, not trying to take matters into his own hand, not rallying his men in order to defend the walls, but trusting God. Even in the face of the promises that this land was to be his. He does not contend the wells and lets God take care of it. Some good, practical, faith, faith-based living. Well, after that, God appears to Isaac. Isaac goes up to Beersheba, which is approximately 19 miles to the northeast, not that far. Beersheba, or or Beersheba, however you want to pronounce it. In the Hebrew, it's a little bit more nuanced. Beersheba. It should sound familiar. This is from chapter 21. This This is where Isaac's father, Abraham, made an oath with the then king of the Philistines, also named Abimelech, and he named the well Beersheba then, which means will of the oath. Let's just tuck that away for right now. That this is the same place that Abraham made his oath with the king of the Philistines. So that's where they are. They're in Beersheba. Verse 24, God appears to Isaac again. He identifies himself as I am. The great title of God, his personal name. I am the God of Abraham, your father. This was to show the unbroken chain of, of, kind of covenantal blessing from one generation to the, to the next. Abraham, and now I'm with Isaac, and now I'm going to be with Jacob after this. This is to show the, the continuity. And then the familiar covenantal promises are repeated. I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring. There's that I am with you promise, the promised presence of God. We call that the Emmanuel principle. I am with you. And we remember why that's so important. Because in contrast, we think of the alternative. If God is not with us, then God is against us. Which would we rather have? Would we rather have God with us and for us, or would we rather have God against us? We'd rather have God with us. That's why that covenantal blessing is so confidence-inspiring to the listeners. Verse 25, Isaac's response is to worship. That's what call upon the name of the Lord means. He pitched his tent there, which is another reminder that even though this is the promised land, even though God said, I am giving you this land, you shall dwell there, it's not his yet. He's living in a tent. He doesn't have a permanent dwelling place in the promised land. Apart from that burial plot, he doesn't own one square inch of it. It's just that that burial cave. And then at the end it says, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Hmm. So Isaac's servants, they're at Beersheba and they're digging a well. We'll tuck that away. Verse 26, encounter with Abimelech. Abimelech went down to Isaac from Gerar along with an advisor and the commander of his army whose name also happens to be Ficol. So at this point, some of us might be saying, oh, wait a minute, hold on a second. I've heard this before. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, Phicol, command of the army. This is the same thing. And it has prompted critical scholars to say, well, this is just a repeat of material that we've seen earlier in Genesis. This can't be trusted. It's just writers making things up and inserting different names. Well, before we rush to that conclusion, let's take a closer look. Is this the exact same event that we saw in chapter 21, or is it something different? Well, first of all, let's remember from last week at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, the author, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us this is different. Remember, he says there is a famine, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So, up front, the author tells us, I know this is going to sound very familiar. This is different. This is new. This is something else. So we've got that in verse 1. But what about the same name? Well, what about it? Abimelech. This is a combination of two words in the Hebrew. One is uh, Ab or Av. Av av in in the Hebrew it means father. And then Melech, which means king. And so this name means my father is king. This was a very common name for kings to give to their sons. They would name their sons, my father is king. It was a way of honoring them, as a way of perpetuating the dynasty. In other words, this is a dynastic name, not unlike Ramses in Egypt. There were at least 11 different Ramses that ruled in Egypt. Now, just because we have multiple kings named the same thing doesn't mean that it's always the same one, and that's the case here. We've got another king of Philistines named Abimelech, my father is king, But that shouldn't surprise us. Very common to have fathers name their sons the same thing, especially when you've got a dynasty ruling. Uh, Ficol also could have been a name passed down from father to son or some other reason we're not aware of. The point is there's no need to rush to the conclusion that this is just a repeat and that the Bible is untrustworthy. In fact, we don't see all the names. In this passage, the king is accompanied by an advisor as well as a commander of the army. In Abraham's account, it was just the commander of the army. So they're different in that respect as well. Verse 27, so they arrive, and Isaac is on the defensive. I wonder why. How has he been treated so far? Well, they've been going around stopping up all the wells of his father. They've been trying to drive him out of the land by withholding important uh, resources like water. And so he's a little on edge. Why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and you sent me away? But look at their response. And there's two things that need to be highlighted in their response. The first is this. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. These are pagan kings and, their, and his advisor and his commander of his army. They're not followers of Yahweh God, yet they use that that name, Yahweh. That's what Lord in all caps means. The personal name of God. We see plainly that the Lord is with you. How could they see that? Because of the way Isaac had been living. It was textbook, faith-based, practical living. His interactions and the blessings of God a hundredfold. Almost unheard of. You practically needed divine intervention in order to reap a hundredfold. That's what Isaac was doing, reaping a hundredfold. During a famine, they saw that. He also seemed to have a knack for finding water. Did we pick that up? Wherever he went, he just found water. We see plainly that God is with you. And he didn't rally his troops and try to defend or engage in fighting. He just walked away. He was living peaceably with his neighbors and even his enemies. They're coming to Isaac seeking a non-aggression pact. He's already practicing a non-aggression pact. He's already not engaging them in warfare. So that's number one. They see plainly that the Lord is with them. His his good works are visible to, to them. And number two, it says that they want to make a covenant with him that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. Is that true? No, not at all. We have to imagine if, or or wonder if if Isaac wasn't thinking, "Mm -hmm, yeah, you've really sent me away in peace. You've done only good things to me. They've been against him. So no, that wasn't true at all. Verse 30 and 31, they ate, drank, slept the night, got up early, exchanged oaths. And then Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. So Abimelech and his entourage came and said, we're just, you know, we're just doing good things to you and we've been really nice. Let's keep that going. But they didn't really do it. Abimelech says, we've sent you away in peace. They didn't send him away in peace. They drove him out in hostility. But in contrast, Isaac actually does send them away in peace. He, he goes ahead and he makes that covenant. He makes the agreement and then sends them on their way. That's how you do it. Practical faith-based living. And then verse 32 and 33, which closes out our passage, it says that same day, so it's tied in with everything that's going on, we have found water. Water from what? From the well that they had been digging up in verse 23. The well that is in Shaba. And Isaac names the well the same name that his father Abraham had named it. Uh, Shabbat, which means, if you see the footnote, oath, it's just another alternate spelling of Shabbat. Sheba, Shabbat. And Be'er means well. So Abraham had named it Be'er Shabbat. Isaac names it Be'er Shabbat, which is what verse 18 had told us. He's unstopping, he's redigging the wells of his father, and he's giving it the same name, that his father had given them. No, these are not the same account with different names plugged in. This is God superintending the writing of his word and showing us the repetition for a reason. He's showing us the covenantal continuity. Isaac is now the covenantal head of the promised line. So I was with Abraham so I will be with you. Just as I did for Abraham and caused this non-aggression pact and gave you the wealth, so I will do for you. That's what's going on in this passage. And in the midst of it, we see God showing us an example of a regular person practicing practical faith-based living. That's how you do it. Everybody take a look at Isaac. See how he's holding his hand? That's it. Just like that. That's what faith looks like. Practical faith-based living. Now it begins with acting on faith. It begins with acting or taking action in response to God's word and God's promises. That's what Isaac was doing. He was acting on faith. We saw multiple examples of that. He walked away from the wells. He He didn't rally the troops. Why? Because he believed that God can handle it. He didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He was taking action in responding to God's word. God has told us that it's it's not enough just to believe. It requires a response. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, That faith apart from works is useless. Okay, and the writer of Hebrews is is saying, look, you you can't say, I believe in God, and then have nothing in your life to show for it. He's saying they go together. You've got to act, you've got to respond. We hear someone walking around saying, Yeah, I believe in God. Congratulations. So do the demons. You're you're riding the same bus as the demons, you're going in the you're going in the same direction. You need more than just believing that God exists. We need a response to that. The question is, what kind of action have you taken in response to believing in God? And first of all, you're believing in the God of the Bible. But secondly, what kind of action? What kind of response? Well, our old friend, the Westminster Larger Confession, Q&A number five says this: What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. We see both components there. What we are to believe about God specifically and then what our response is to be. That's what the Bible's all about. You see, if we believe, if what we believe about God comes from within ourselves, then we have a problem because our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are sinful. If if the only thing we believe about God is, is what we want to believe, if we go around and say, well, I think I, I believe this about God or or I, I think this is how God really is, then we're just kind of spouting what we think and what comes out of our own heart. And it can't be trusted. If left to ourselves, we will believe what we want to believe, which means we're going to live however we want to live If we are the rule setters, if we are the final judges of morality, then we're going to live however we want. And we will be able to justify just about anything. And we will, because we're making up the rules. The only way to know the truth about God is to look to God's own revelation, God's word. If we want to know the truth about God, we have to look outside of ourselves. We shouldn't expect it to come from inside. We should expect it to come from God that's extremely arrogant to think that we, the created creature, can decide what to believe about our creator. Shouldn't that come from him? Now, once we know what God has said, we're required to act on that word. And what has God told us? Matthew 17, 5, this is the father speaking about the son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then, of course, the core of Jesus' message, Mark 1, 15, repent and believe in the gospel. The father has sent his son, and the son has said, repent and believe in the gospel. If we, if we had to boil it down, that that's at, that's right at the core. It doesn't get too much simpler than that. What is the gospel? The gospel is believing that God is who he says he is, as revealed in the Bible, that we are who God says we are, his created creatures, moral beings who are personally accountable to him. And that we are to turn from our sin and turn towards Jesus in faith, believing that his payment on the cross is sufficient to cover our sin and that his perfect righteousness by faith is credited to us so that God can accept us and declare us righteous in his sight. And then we live for him. The gospel is what God has told us to believe. That's the first step, repenting and believing in Jesus. And then the rest of our life is living also in response. to That, that is the first and most important response to God's word. But after that, as believers, his church, we know that it doesn't stop there. We continue. And what we've seen here in this passage are three different areas that Isaac has has shown us. That's how you do it. So number one, living peaceably with neighbors and enemies. Here's what Romans 12 says. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil by evil. No, excuse me, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Practical faith-based living. This is how we interact with neighbors and even our enemies. Remember, Isaac could have pushed his well rights. He could have said, this is the promised land that God has promised to me, so back off. And if you don't, I'm going to rally my men. Just like my father Abraham rallied his men and went and rescued Lot, I can rally my men and push things. He could have said to Abimelech, your father, or your father's father, whatever the case may be, made an oath with my father, and I want you to honor it. I'm not letting you go. You, yeah, we could make an aggression non-aggression pact, but one's already been made. And I'm the inheritor of everything that was my father, so it still stands. But he didn't. Instead, it's almost, as if, it's almost as if Isaac reached across time and read Romans 12. This is exactly what he did. This is how you do Romans 12. He did not repay evil for evil. He truly did send them away in peace. He did not take back his wells by force. His enemies were driving him out. And what did he do? He literally walked away and gave his enemies something to drink with the wells. He did it. That's exactly what it looks like. Sometimes the best thing for us is to just walk away. If we want... Practical faith-based living, if we, want to, if we want to actually carry out the commands of the Bible, especially in this particular instance, living peaceably with those around us, then that means sometimes the best option is to simply walk away. Now, I'm not talking about walking away from things like defending our family or walking away from remaining firm on God's word under persecution. That's not it at all. We are to remain firm on those things. We shouldn't walk away for those things. I'm talking about non-essentials, Things when we're slighted, things when um, our rights are infringed, interactions with neighbors, co-workers, maybe even extended family. There was a, a man that lived when, when we lived in Maine, there was a we lived outside of town on this kind of you know rural road. And there was a a couple of people on that road, I don't remember how it got started, but I remember talking with one man, they they had some kind of Uh, Scuffle one time over property rights, I believe it was, and then one of the men smashed the other person's mailbox. So that guy turned around and smashed his mailbox. And then that guy came and ran over his mailbox with his truck. And that guy turned around and ran over his mailbox. Now, this happened over a series of days. It wasn't immediate, but this kind of back-and-forth escalation. And the last thing uh, I remember, one of the men was... Secretly pouring rebar and concrete several feet into the ground to reinforce his mailbox post and then putting wood around it so it looked like wood and was saying something like, he's going to get a surprise next time he comes back to get my mailbox. That. That. As, as followers of Jesus, we should have nothing to do with that. That kind of escalating back and forth, repaying someone evil for the evil done, done to us, that we should have nothing to do with that. Now, we live in a culture that is increasingly expecting people to stand up for their rights. We're encouraged to demand or, or take what we think deserve. Lawsuits are filed. Um, vigilante justice is pursued. We see news accounts of this all the time. All sorts of legal and illegal actions are taken and carried out because people have decided in their own hearts and minds that what they're doing, their, their response is justified based on the real or perceived injustice that has been done to them. And followers of Christ should have nothing to do with that. Most of the time, the best response is to simply walk away. And Isaac shows us how to do Romans 12. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with those around us. Well, he also shows us how to love God and love others. Matthew 22, 36 through 39. Teacher which is the great commandment of the law. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the Bible talks about this. All the both tables of the law are built upon this. Everything, all the law and the prophets basically come down to one of these two areas, loving God, loving others. Isaac is living with peaceably with his neighbors. No doubt about that. And... He's persevering in faith and worship of God. I hope we caught that as we as we move through here. He keeps moving. He keeps digging a new well. He doesn't get discouraged. He's believing in God's promises. You know, he could have after the the end of the first well, or definitely after the second well. You know, maybe you kind of take a hint. After either one of those times, he could have just said, "Well, I guess." God doesn't want me to have this land anymore. I'll, I'll just go down to Egypt and live there. He could have just given up. But instead, he realized no, God promised this land, and despite these circumstances, I am A, going to live peaceably with these people, but B, I'm going to persevere in faith. I'm going to keep going until God opens the door and allows me to dwell here peaceably with water. I believe you, Lord. And then he praises God for it. For now the Lord has made room for us. It wasn't his hard work, the strength of his back, the sweat of his brow. It wasn't his servants. It wasn't his persevering. It wasn't him continuing to work hard on it. He doesn't take credit for it. He says, the Lord has done this. It's not me. And then that statement about future faith. We shall be fruitful in the land. That's faith. And then uh, verse 23, Isaac builds an altar and worships the Lord, the one true God. He's doing both. He's loving God and loving his neighbor. That's how you do it. Persevering, believing the promises of God, and in the midst of it, this practical faith-based living with his, with his neighbors and enemies. And he does it all in a way that is visible to those Around him. And that's the last thing that that we're shown in Isaac. This visible, these visible good works done in faith cause others to give glory to God. We saw that very clearly in, in their Abimelech's response. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Look at Matthew 5, 14 through 16. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, it's like Isaac reached across time and got a hold of Matthew chapter 5. He's doing exactly this. He's, He's acting in a way that others are able to see it, and they give God the glory. This is incredible. From the lips of this pagan king, we see plainly that the Lord is with you. Hmm. Which causes us to ask the question, can others see plainly in us the Lord Jesus Christ? Can others see plainly in us that, that he is with us and we are with him? Is our light shining before others that they may see good works and give glory to God in heaven? It starts on the home front. It starts with how we manage our households, how we raise our children, how we spend our time and money. But a lot of those things aren't visible to a watching world because it's at home, right? A lot of those things don't remain very visible. The fruit of that is often visible to to a watching world, but a lot of that isn't visible. What is one of the foremost ways that we can allow others to plainly see That God is with us and that we are with God. What is one of the foremost ways that we can allow our light to shine? And I would suggest that it is gathering in the assembled church and remaining a faithful member of his body. Gathering in the assembled church on the Lord's day and observing the Sabbath according to scripture. That is one of the foremost ways that we can allow our light to shine before a watching world. There's no way to avoid that. When people see us and they recognize, oh, you go to church regularly. Oh, that's what you do on Sunday. Oh, you don't act like everybody else on the Sabbath. Oh, you're following God's word. I see that. It's visible. Because living peaceably with our neighbors can only shine so brightly. That's a good thing. We are commanded to do that, but it can only shine so brightly. It cannot illuminate the Lordship of Jesus like worship and faithful membership in the local church. And here's what I mean by that. Let's let's take two persons, person A, person B. Person A lives peaceably with others. They're they're doing the Isaac thing. They're they're living peacefully with with their neighbors. They're getting along. They're likable. They're considered likable by outsiders, but they're not a faithful member of a local church. They treat the Sabbath like most unbelievers treat it. They they attend service at a church, you know, once in a while, but often they don't. They find themselves too busy to get involved in that and to serve. And they want the freedom to come and go as they please and do what they want, so they do. They do. But otherwise, they're a model citizen. Person B lives peaceably with other people and is viewed by a likable person, by, by outsiders, very similar to person A. But person B is a faithful member of a local church and they do observe the Sabbath according to scripture. And unless providentially hindered, they are in the Lord's house on the Lord's day and they serve the church in the area of their giftedness sacrificially and they give of themselves and their resources. They find their greatest freedom In worshiping and serving the Lord with their whole heart and with a clean conscience. Do you see the difference between person A and person B? Person A viewed as morally upright. And as as far as the community goes, and then the local paper and then and everybody around them, they're they're a great person. But they don't attend worship, they don't go to church. And by their lives, they are denying the lordship of Jesus Christ because in the end, it's their weekend. They'll do what they want to, not what God's word says. Whereas person B, also a nice person, respected by the community, viewed as morally upright, but by their lives, they allow the lordship of Jesus Christ to shine brightly. They understand, and everybody watching them understands, their life is not their own. It's not their weekend. It's the Lord's. It belongs to Jesus. And their lives show a life of worship, sacrifice, and obedience to word. Here's the thing. At any given time, the way we live our lives, we are either showing and shining and demonstrating the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, or we're living in such a way that demonstrates the lack of Lordship over our lives. It's one of the two. Living peaceably and, and doing all these things that unbelievers can also do. They can be good people. They can only shine so brightly. Isaac didn't just live peacefully with his neighbors and walk away from asserting his well rights. He also built an altar and he worshiped the one true God. He didn't just love his neighbor. He also loved God and acted on his belief and his faith And what does Jesus say about loving him? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. At any given time, we are either showing and demonstrating the lordship of Jesus Christ over our life or a lack of it. Well, on archery day, uh, Steve was having the time of his life. He was loving shooting those arrows downrange and he kept good form the the whole time. But there were some students that, through either negligence or just uh, didn't pay attention, didn't hold the right grip. And sure enough, as they released the string, it came and scraped on their arm and they, they were injured. Even though they were shown how to hold the bow, even though they were told, this is how you do it, they didn't. And that's the way it is with us. Right? We're not Jesus. As we saw with Isaac, he's, he's not perfect. Okay, this is great. This is textbook faith-based living. Last week, not so much. And we remember that when it comes to God's grace in our sin, no contest, God's win. God, God, God wins. God's grace wins. It, it beats even when our sin seems like, seems like it has superpowers and it's ganging up on us. No contest, God's grace wins. So we need that message. We need that consistent gospel message. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of our own works. But we also need to understand that God expects us to walk before him and follow his commandments. And because sometimes there's no substitute for being shown something, God throws in a few examples of imperfect people like Isaac, like you and me, but they're doing it. And he says, here's how you do it. You want to know how to live peaceably with your neighbors? Here's how you do it. What does it look like to not repay evil with evil? Here's how you do it. How do you love God and love others? How can you live in a way that lets your light shine others so that God gets the glory? Here's how you do it. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, we thank you you've given us Jesus, and we thank you that within your word you've recorded for us real life examples of imperfect people that not only fail and have to lean on your grace, but also times when they get it right. Father, we know that through faith in Christ, you, those promises, those covenantal promises are ours. You are with us, and your grace is more powerful than our sin. And Father, we also thank you that you have shown us what it looks like to practice practical faith-based living. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's power to live for you. In Jesus' name, Amen.